državljandi podcast za aktivne državljane. Okay, so, um, welcome to yet another international edition of uh, Citizen D podcast. Um, today it's uh, 21st of February, but you're listening this in in March, so welcome to the future. Uh, joining us today is is an author, an artist, uh, James Bridal. Uh, you may heard of him uh, through his book, um, which analyzes the the dark side, I would say, of of information, of information um, society and technology. And uh, you might have heard of him from his Medium post on YouTube, playing YouTube, playing YouTube. Uh, the algorithms creating content which which is meant only for, I guess you could say, monetization and and uh, nothing else so welcome james um first question would be um a bit philosophical are, are we in the information uh, information society are humans still in charge are we still running the show or are we being run by stuff um hi thanks for having me <laughs> um i know that, that seems like a super broad question because some humans are in charge and that's the deal right um i like technology is completely masterable um it's not a, yet at a point of any kind of complete autonomy though it's possible that, that point is approaching fast um and gets kind of interesting but right now no humans are definitely in charge um but as i say some humans are in charge okay the, the question of who is in charge whether that's national governments whether that's certain powerful corporations which sections of society the rich and the powerful as usual uh are, are kind of running the show and it's not always clear to what extent everyone else is being run by them mm-hmm. but it is clear that information technology is the substrate of everyday life mm-hmm. at present mm-hmm. um, everything we do um, increasingly uh, everything from, from our education um, all the way up to our, our kind of media consumption the places that we vote the places that we participate in the way our governance operates all of these things are mediated through information technologies. Mm-hmm. So the people who control those technologies do really control everything. Mm-hmm. Um, so would you say that you said the people who control the technology, would you say that they're... Because it's often when you talk about people in charge, you often get this perception that it's all coordinated and it's all planned out and it's all, you know, the evil masterminds are sitting in, its, in their high towers and man its switches. Would you say that's the case, or it, it would almost be better if it was? You know, <laughs> it would make it so much easier to understand and deal with if, if, if it really was just like some very clear evil kind of Bond villains running the whole show. But it's not. You know, I know people who work for these large companies. I know people who work in government. I even know some people who work in the kind of more secret bits of government. They're just normal everyday people, and they mostly believe in what they do, um, uh, and have good reasons for doing it. Um, I think when it comes to though. Particularly, I think a lot of people who work in information technology for large companies, um, there's there's a there's a clear critical gap in thinking about this. Like the, most people who work in these technologies don't really question what it is they do or the effects of what they do, and that is a systemic social failure. It's not merely a failure on their part. Mm. We 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 have a system that for the last 50 years has encouraged us to believe that that technology in particular is this kind of scientific neutral discipline. Mm-hmm. Some of us have thought that science and technology have never been neutral, of course, and always been engaged with politics, but that's not the way we've taught them, and it's not the way we've really thought about them generally. Mm-hmm. Um, so you have a whole cohort of people who've grown up working on these technologies, building these systems, 
believing that they're just tinkering with code, mm-hmm. completely unaware of the kind of politics and ethics that surround that. Mm. Um, so I, there's certainly some people working within this who have deeply questionable morals. I mean, you look at people who run companies like um, Uber, for example, is run by someone who's famously a dickhead. Right? It's just like a really <laughs> awful human being. Um, but lots of them aren't. Um, um, but, but once they're placed inside large corporate machines mm-hmm. um, then it's quite easy for bad things to happen because they're optimised purely for profit mm-hmm. uh, and therefore they're just simply not going to take into account a, a lot of the damage that they cause mm-hmm. why, do you think there's a, why do you think there's a lack of responsibility or even recognition of the influence technology has on the social sphere within the, the tech sector That's a good question. I mean, I think on one part, it's um, it's just a desire not to take responsibility in that in in that hard. Um, it's it's also because like taking that responsibility is ultimately going to affect their their bottom line. Mm-hmm. Um, and when you have companies that run at that size, anything that attacks the bottom line is an existential threat. Mm-hmm. Um, and because so much can be automated within that. Um, I know, I was just reading Sushana Zuboff's new book, Surveillance Capitalism, which is fantastic. Um, but Zuboff is a believer, is a deep believer in capitalism in a way that I'm not particularly. Mm. Um, she really believes in like good old capitalism that, um, that you know, produced like large profit-making companies, but also produced what she calls this double action within society that produced unions, that produced kind of social support and mm-hmm. welfare that also meant there was a social component mm-hmm. to those forms of capitalism. I don't really buy that reading, but it has some truth to it. Mm. But she argues very persuasively as well that contemporary network capitalism doesn't produce that, mm-hmm. um, that it's able to kind of totally separate itself from society. And indeed, that's what we see occurring. Mm. Um, but it's bound up with some deep ideological beliefs as well. Mm-hmm. Um, there, there is, which I think is also connected to this, the kind of belief, the site power complex that comes with abilities in technology that seems to afflict people. They believe mm-hmm. that if we build this, if we can build this, we should build this, that we're mm-hmm. meant to build this, mm-hmm. and that anything that stands in the way of building this is, is somehow sort of against nature, mm-hmm. which is this kind of deeply uh, neoliberal or even kind of um, libertarian belief. Mm-hmm. So there, there's something about these, this kind of technical education and these particular kind of libertarian beliefs that really seem to sync mm-hmm. quite tightly together. Mm-hmm. Would you say it has something to do with the, I guess you could say the appearance or the marketing around tech development that it's always connected with the future or with some futuristic society where tech will be omnipresent and self-sustainable and it will run on its own and people would be just, you know, part of the, part of the machine? Yeah, I mean, it's always presented as the future and as one clear future. And as an inevitability, mm-hmm. uh, this what, what we call technological determinism. Like you know, if we have the mm-hmm. tech, we will use it, and this is yeah. what it, this is how it will be. Um, uh, it's also presented along with very kind of you know neoliberal ideas of, of kind of individual freedom and individuality. Those, those are super key to it. Mm-hmm. But but that that this belief in technological determinacy um, is a really interesting one because it's. It's weird how we accept tech as the future, but we only seem to ever accept like, this one possible view of that future. Mm-hmm. And so whoever's kind of ahead at the present, which you know at the moment is, is the large tech companies, is mm-hmm. kind of um, Facebook, Google, Apple, and a few others. Um, you know, they really, 
they present themselves as the future because they are the future right now, uh, and 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 they make their success seem inevitable, mm-hmm. which is very much again this kind of libertarian mm-hmm. um, belief in a kind of meritocracy, or like we're we're doing the best, therefore we must be the best, and we will always be the best, and therefore we are the future. Mm. Um, you know, really tied into kind of um, yeah histories of particularly American exceptionalism and kind mm. of. Uh, oligarchy and you know these kind of things uh, so yeah it's this yeah. kind of self-determined path that yeah. once we're on it kind of continues to feed yeah. itself and slowly kind of hides all other possibilities away and, and automatically every critique of information society and technology is labeled as a as this ludistic attempt of destroying the machine or breaking the parts and and you know being oh you're so backwards you know you're supposed to look towards the future not away from it yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's re- and it's really hard to formulate critiques around this stuff. But the, the 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 you know the example that I always go back to, which is very old and very well known, but it's, it's always bears repeating, is is the Luddites, who you know today in English Luddite means to be kind of against technology and basically mm-hmm. to be backward, mm-hmm. right? But the Luddites originally were a protest movement in England that um, that smashed the first automated looms. Um, because they didn't like the working conditions that they opposed. They were, they were a social movement uh, that wanted um, better support for labourers. Mm-hmm. They weren't against the technology per se, they were against the social conditions that the technology produced. Mm-hmm. And so we have to be very careful when we're, when we're critiquing technology, what it, what it is exactly that we're critiquing. Are we te- mm-hmm. critiquing the, the, the technology companies? Are we critiquing the form of life that's produced by technology? Also, crucially, are we proposing any kinds of alternatives? Mm-hmm. Um, because Because I make work and write from the position of being someone who despite everything and sometimes I don't really know why believe in the possibilities of this still Mm. it still remains to me incredibly interesting incredibly full of possibility incredibly full still of new ways of thinking Mm. Um, but maybe that's why I'm kind of allergic to these when I feel like it kind of collapses into a kind of static uh, and in fact even kind of retrogressive way of thinking Mm. because if you look at the internet now it's not implementing any kind of interesting future Mm. if you look at the way the internet has been captured by um, corporate and and government interests Mm. in the last um, uh, decade it's actually become incredibly conservative it's turned it back into a strip mall and a kind of zone of total surveillance there's nothing progressive or futuristic about that Mm. That's that's a very very old um kind of state capitalist dream um, and I'm not interested in that that's not the future that I want mm. um, but that doesn't mean that the technologies themselves don't still contain uh, possibilities for other futures mm. before we look into that I want to uh, I want to go back to something you said in in your lecture uh, yesterday in, in Ljubljana and you you spoke about your book about the, the historical view of how things were and how things uh, came about in in the in the present and you and you mentioned the role of education or perception and i'm often reminded or at least i'm i'm thinking about um, nikola tesla's experiment with the with a remote control boat this is a story i heard in 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 belgrade in in, in belgrade in, in nikola tesla museum and it goes something like this like um, so the nikola was testing his his remote control boat on a lake in in belgrade and people were amazed how this technology, you know, remote controlling without any seen wires uh, is, is possible, can, can be done. And they made three uh, logical explanations about how this boat is, is controlled by Nikola. So the first 
the first uh, group of people said, well, it's obvious, you know, the man has a, has a wire down his pants and under the earth and under the, under the, um, the lake and he's controlling, there's a hidden wire somewhere. The other one said, no, 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 that's, that's completely stupid, that's, that's not how it's done, you know, you can't, you know, the wire needs to be insulated and there's not, there, 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 it isn't long enough. It's obvious, you know, there's a monkey in the boat and the monkey is responding to the clicks of his controller and the monkey's driving the boat. And it's obvious. <laughs> and I'm often reminded how, how we, we're unable or the, how we are unable to interpret or to even understand what's happening because we don't have knowledge, skills, experience in, in, this, in, this, um, in this sphere, in this, in this arena. So what's your take on, on the point or the meaning of education within this sphere? Um, yeah, I mean, that's a really super good example of what happens when, you know, a new technology comes along that people simply don't have the terms of reference for dealing with. It's just so, so, so out, out with their experience that you can't kind of respond to. But it's also, I think, super easy to to get there with, with quite small amounts of education. So when I, when I talk about education, what I, what I talk about is um, giving kind of just enough practical experience to people that they feel like they can engage with it. So um, I think one of the, the big things that education does, and particularly technical education, technological education, something that's available to everyone, it doesn't mean you need to learn to program a supercomputer or an AI. Um, you just need enough skills to not be afraid of engaging with these things for yourself. Um, so I, I always think of this in terms of agency, you know, whereas agency is not necessarily the ability to um, produce some kind of huge change by yourself, but it's to have the confidence that you have a stake in this. You have um, a, a right to think these to think about these things, to ask these kind of questions, you have enough vocabulary to frame a question that you can ask to someone else and get a useful answer back. Mm -hmm. Because, because the, again, like I said before, you know, we spent the last 50 years creating this kind of privileged class of people who are engaged with these questions, who build them practically. Um, but it's actually a very small um, kind of slice of the demographic. Um, it's very undiverse. Um, and therefore there's a lot of questions that are not asked or even kind of thought to be asked mm -hmm. but the more people you bring into that conversation uh, the more interesting questions get asked mm -hmm. um, and, and the kind of balance of it shifts and, and only a very small amount of knowledge I feel is required to kind of participate in these discussions mm. um, but, it, but it, can, it can come in quite interesting places so yesterday I was talking about kind of decentralised and distributed technologies which are kind of the bit of the internet that after quite a lot of um, disillusionment have kind of got me excited again because I find they're both powerful in the way that they reshape the network mm -hmm. uh, in very practical ways but also they're, they're technologies that are quite easy to teach and easy to grasp mm -hmm. and when people understand how they're different to uh, the way we've come to expect technology to be their whole kind of mindset around technology shifts and they gain a huge amount of this agency that I'm talking mm -hmm. about. Mm -hmm. So the, the other part would be, so this is, this is uh, let's say, let's call it tech education. On the other hand, uh, you have a special place uh, uh, within, the, within the information society for, for humanities. 
So how do humanities, hum- humanistic studies, uh, social studies come into this? Yeah. Well, you see, I come from this weird background where I sort of studied computer science, um, but sort of reluctantly as someone who actually preferred preferred the humanities. And, and then I worked in like book publishing and was in literature and I kind of have bounced back and forth between them. And, and my role seems to have always been whether it was working professionally within book publishing or whether it was as a kind of web designer or now as a kind of writer and artist, um, there's always been to sort of explain, to be this kind of bridge between these two like really different ways of thinking. Um, the, the, the tech side that can't kind of put up with the hand-wavy stuff that, that humanities spouts and the humanities who seem genuinely afraid of, of engaging with the technology, which is just this absolutely terrible position because they have so much to give to one another. For example? Um, well, for, well the, I mean, the main thing is that, um, you know, you cannot think about, you can't put this technology out into the world today without thinking about its kind of ethical and political reprodu- repercussions. Like mm. You need the social sciences um, to, to actually have, to, to engage this stuff with the world and think about what it actually does. To think about, you know, a, a, and then to kind of further stretch the humanities, what its meaning mm. is. Um, uh, because without thinking about the ethics of, and, and repercussions of these technologies, without thinking what they mean, what they're for, we can't decide what we'd like to do with them. Mm. Um, that's how you end up with technological determinism because you have no kind of guide or direction to what it is that you're doing with these mm. technologies. You just endlessly build out, mm. um, uh, you know, in whatever kind of seems the most kind of uh, impressive or exciting domain for it to go on w- without having any, any kind of precepts to mm. guide you. Mm. Um, uh, and that's a responsibility for the humanities to kind of engage with this as well. Um, because also it opens up kind of entire huge new domains for the humanities to actually be able to, to, to think about what the, 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 the ways in which these tools can mm. shape society as well. Because, mm. I mean, to me, coming from a, from a uh, journalistic point of view and from, from social science point of view, I think it's, it's a lack of confidence that arises from, I guess you could say, being told that, you know, this is not for you in terms of tech developers and stuff, you know, yeah, you, yeah. you humanistic philosophers don't get it, you know, leave us, leave us alone, leave the technology to the technologists. And at the same time, you, you can see a sort of a dissonance between the supposedly neutral technology and techno-determinism. So it's being neutral, but the technology tells you what yeah, to do. That's not neutral. That's yeah. not, yeah. yeah. But at the same time, would you say that the problem is you know, the problem of being always neutral or the importance of being neutral ties back to, to this, um, I guess you could say, exit from, from everything political. So that, you know... I mean, that's the belief, but it's not mm. the case. Mm. Um, like, it's, it's, it's just not, it's not what's happening. And also, it's, it's, um, it's really important to note that it's, a, that it's, a, it's also a deliberate lie, <laughs> uh, particularly in the case, again, of the large technology companies, where they've spent the last, you know, uh, 20 years building huge powerful systems telling us that they're unregulatable by government that, that they that they as as a function both of their neutrality but also the speed with which they're created mm-hmm. uh, it's impossible for governments to be involved in this and by extension all of us mm-hmm. and we should just step back and let us do whatever they want while at the same time investing billions of dollars in 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 political lobbying mm-hmm. um uh you know prevent any kind of legislation happening mm-hmm. uh, so they know that there's a 
a danger to them from legislation. They're mm. fully aware of this, mm -hmm. and they've they've utterly concealed that, you know, quite deliberately. Mm. So again, we should take these claims to neutrality with with somewhat of a pinch of salt, mm. and see them even themselves as part of a political program. Mm. Um, but I think I think what you say also about like, um, and this is something that I'm super interested in at the moment. What you say about being told that this is not for you. Mm -hmm. I came across a, a, an example a while back of, of, of that happening like really directly, which is that, so like, like a lot of people, maybe of a little while ago on the internet, I, I learned about computers and particularly about the internet by viewing source, mm -hmm. right? Which is the operation where on any website you ask to view the source and you see the code that makes up that website. Mm -hmm. This is harder and harder to do today because websites are built in like these stupidly complicated ways. Mm -hmm. But by and large, if you view source on a website, you can see the structure, the underlying structure of that website. And viewing source is this incredibly powerful thing because it allows you to learn by, by engaging mm -hmm. with a thing. Mm -hmm. It's also like a kind of extraordinary, like empowering, political maneuver to say <laughs> I want to see the source of this like I want to see the underlying code of it mm. which to me is related to this weird double motion that technology always does which is that on one level anytime something's rendered as code it becomes invisible mm -hmm. like it, it sort of disappears behind mm. glass but at the same time with just a little bit of understanding, just by viewing source, mm. it actually becomes clear in a way that it never was before mm -hmm. so that, that's a super interesting moment that happens there but I was um, I was I was viewing source. I, I viewed source on Facebook, mm -hmm. and when you view source on Facebook, um, this little message pops up uh, that says like, "Don't do anything here. Get away from here. This is dangerous." <laughs> uh, that Facebook has programmed into that mm -hmm. um, because lots of hackers try and get people to do stupid stuff uh, around around the console, the JavaScript mm -hmm. console, and viewing source and this kind of stuff. So I know why they've done it, mm -hmm. but at the same time, it's it's. It's a horrible idea for me that people who are coming to the web now or, and to technology in general, the first moment they do this action of kind of peeking under the hood, mm. a viewing source, are confronted with a message that says exactly that, like it says, you know, this away. is not for yeah. you, go away. Uh -huh. um, and so I actually ended up building, uh, uh, building a little script myself that I run on my own website and I distribute free to other people that does a reverse message mm -hmm. so that when you open oh, up nice. for the first time it just says hi welcome, welcome. message like <laughs> welcome to the under you know the underbelly the underside and and also gives you some like links to like mm. where you can find out more and what this means and and all of this stuff mm. and that ties into a, I think a, a larger question about education which is about you know not just thinking in terms of um uh you know, IT classes in schools, um, uh, but really in like how we design everything mm. to help us to understand it. Mm. I think this is a really key thing um, mm. because the way we und and again, this is something that I think is is not it's not deliberately evil, but the way that design has worked, particularly digital design for the last um, a decade or so, is to try and make everything as simple and and sort of clean and. Uh, were essentially thoughtless mm. as possible. Childproof. Right? <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, or they, they call it kind of seamless design, or so you know, so that you never have to think about what you're doing. So w when you log into a phone or onto a website, you go through these processes. Uh, it makes it as simple as possible. And of course, there's a kind of a design and a, and a, a corporate uh, 
desire behind that to kind of move you through this process as mm. quickly as possible but the effect is that no one thinks about what it is that they're doing mm. that you don't even really understand what the process it, it, you've gone through is or you know what the ramifications are when you log into a website you know you, you don't necessarily think about I mean we long before even like terms of service and stuff but simply giving your password to someone and like mm. you know where does that information mm. end up or you know I believe that there's ways to design those experiences differently that actually help you to understand as you go through the process. Mm, mm. And so this this idea of education can happen at, at every level of the process, whether it's you know right there in the viewing source of a mm -hmm. website or it's it's um it's whenever you're actually using these kind of services, um, they can be made more thoughtful. And that's just kind of, for me one example of how we can kind of twist this to make it a, a little less. Um, uh, uh, to to, to lo you know close that separation between a kind of priestly class of, of developers and designers and, and kind of everybody else, which I, I do feel is at the root of a huge number of problems before you even get into the more deliberately kind of evil and oppressive stuff. Mm. Uh, in our in our last part of the conversation, I want to touch upon uh, the the future side of of the development. So there's currently a debate, or there's currently two. Um, trains of thought going on um, on the way how we should let's say integrate people in the information technology or information society and there's one case of uh, digital literacy which focuses on skills uh, and uh, there's another one called media literacy which focus on, focuses on perception of the mass media within the democratic society. Currently, at least in Slovenia, the, the digital literacy is winning because you know the, the mantra is you know we need uh, digital blue-collar workers who will hack the code and who will program it and everybody wants to be a developer nowadays while on the other hand you have media literacy who says you know we need active citizens we need people who are able to not just engage with technology but also to think on a broader level of political representation of, of technology What's your? I mean, you 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 talk about it in in your book as well. Uh, you know, what's what's your what's your crystal ball saying about the next, let's say, ten years? Um, look, I I don't do crystal balls quite quite quite, quite simply. I'm I'm sort of not interested in the future in that regard uh, because I, I think it's kind of I don't know. I, I I don't like speculation. What I'm interested in is getting like a clear view of the present. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I think your question completely applies to the present as well. Um, and I think that's a, it's a super interesting distinction, this uh, digital literacy versus media literacy. Mm. Um, uh, because I'm, while I continually advocate for people to learn technological skills, I'm very wary of that, um, uh, of that kind of very simplified view of digital literacy, which is just teaching people to code so they can get jobs. Mm. That's not the end result because that's the education system we already have mm -hmm. and we know how quickly that fails and falls apart when skills yeah. change uh, that it doesn't actually really prepare people uh, for anything beyond getting a job and frequently it even fails at that yeah. so we, we know that that is fundamentally insufficient um, I'm obviously on the side of greater media literacy um, though I, I would extend it beyond media literacy by saying that in the book what I talk about quite a lot is I talk about what other people have called, and I'll take up, uh, systems literacy. Mm -hmm. um, systemic literacy is is when you have the kind of literacy that can be applied 
can be learned in one area can mm. then be kind of applied in another because it gives you an awareness of the thing of the idea that things that large complex systems are networked are engaged with one another are unpredictable but that you can live with right that you can actually engage <laughs> with in meaningful ways and yeah, yeah. particularly survive mm. and, and there's a link uh, and I, I think it's very close to media literacy um, and it's close to digital literacy if taken further mm-hmm. um, because I, and I say that because I feel like I possess one form and there are many of systems literacy and I gained it through digital literacy I, I gained it by learning to code mm-hmm. but I but I didn't gain it by learning to code one type of system mm-hmm. I didn't I didn't I didn't gain it by learning you know one type of software or like you know basically my, my degree tried to give me the skills to go and work in IT in a bank um, and I wasn't that interested in that so I did lots of other kind of stuff as well um, but playing with large complex systems gave me the confidence to mm. engage with other large complex systems so in my artistic work I frequently take the frameworks of you know um, code and technology and apply them to other things like I quite often I do stuff around law um, and politics that views these things as large complex systems that are not the same as code Mm -hmm. but as I say they are large complex systems with certain behavioral similarities Mm -hmm. and when you gain literacy in one system you can take it and apply it to other systems because when you see all the world as these kind of large interlocking systems it, it gives you an entirely different viewpoint and confidence and agency within them Mm. Um, so I would say systems literacy is the thing (laughs) that you can get to through digital literacy and that will also give you some media literacy as well Um, but not to not to reduce it to to either digital or to media but to look at this kind of grander um, more uh, kind of holistic and also not discipline based way of seeing the world okay um, thanks so much, James, for, for stopping by. Uh, this has been a Citizen D podcast. You're listening this to the at um, in in March on the 15th of March, um, and uh, we'll I guess see you soon. Thank you, James. Thanks very much. <laughs>